Our mission, we're about helping people find and follow Jesus. We want uh, dads especially and moms and kids of all ages to, to know Jesus and to live their life for Jesus. Today, I'm bringing you, uh, we're going to take a, a pause from our series through the book of Romans just for one week, and I'm going to talk about marriage. I'm calling this sermon, Marriage, Expanding Your Capacity to Love. And so if you want to go in your Bibles, I'm going to be in a little bit in, in Ephesians chapter 5, but you probably want to thumb your way and maybe put a mark in the Old Testament book of Hosea. Hosea is where we're going to spend a bulk of our time today. Might be a little hard to find, but I'm sure if you go to the table of contents, find it, go there, because that's some water that we rarely go to as Christians. Today, we're going to go there. But today, because today's the day that our country has set aside to celebrate fathers, and we appropriately call this Father's Day. So I hope that didn't take a committee to come up with. And, and to celebrate fathers, I thought it was, you know, prayed about it. What am I supposed to preach on? And I thought, you know, I want to preach on marriage. On Mother's Day, I preached a, a message about passing the legacy of faith, if you remember that. And so really that message was both to mothers and fathers. And so, it, you know, usually what pastors do on Mother's Day, you get the sweet, encouraging, wonderful message about a great mom. It's just, oh, it's just so, just so awesome, just how nice that message. And then Father's Day rolls around, and usually the pastor preaches a kick in the gut message. Okay, that's usually, if you've been in church a long time, you know that's how it goes. Well, since I didn't preach the sweet, wonderful um, message about mothers on Mother's Day, I'm not going to preach the kicky in the gut message on Father's Day. I'm an equal opportunity offender. I plan to offend everybody today. Not, I'm just kidding about that. But probably somebody's going to get a little bit offended. But I'm going to preach on marriage. So I'm sure at least somebody in this room is going to get a little uncomfortable. That's okay. But I'm preaching this message to really encourage us. Okay? Here's the truth, I think, that all the married people, I should get an amen on this. Marriage is hard. Amen. Thank you. There we go. We're getting some talk back now. Marriage is hard. But my goal is that this message will encourage us, not only those that are married, but also the not yet married and the, the to be married. We'll all be encouraged by the time we finish this message. At my previous church, I was a pastor over premarital counseling. And at that church, that was nearly a full-time job. It's like every week or every other week, there's some couple coming in wanting to get married. And so my, my beautiful wife, she's downstairs with, in children's church right now. She was my partner in crime in this, in this ministry. You know, meeting with couples and trying to uh, encourage them to see potential blind spots in their own character. And they're not really seen. And so the goal was to really help them see that so that they could have a stronger marriage in the future, little rabbit trail along the same lines. Uh, I was at a marriage conference that was being taught by Gary Thomas. Gary Thomas, he wrote the book Sacred Marriage. If you're looking for a good read, that's a shameless plug for a great book on marriage, Sacred Marriage by Gary Thomas. But so he's the speaker at this conference, and he's talking about premarital counseling. I'm very invested in this because that's the ministry I was over at the time. And he equated to premarital counseling as it is to fungicide for a seed. So hopefully I got all the, the attention of the farmers in the room. He said that a fungicide doesn't guarantee a healthy plant, 
But it does help the seed at its most delicate point because he said there's all kinds of fungi that are trying to attack the seed and really trying to kill the seed when it's its most delicate. So though it doesn't guarantee a healthy plant will be grown, it helps at its most delicate stage. And with that is what premarital counseling is to a marriage. Because when you get married, there's all these forces and issues and all these, uh, this junk that is trying to kill that marriage. And premarital counseling doesn't guarantee, but it helps a healthy marriage to grow. Well, back off that rabbit trail. But I remember one time my wife and I were having some kind of disagreement. That's when I was over this marriage. And as we're teaching dozens and dozens of premarital uh, couples. And I remember we were standing in our bedroom and she said... You know that thing you're always telling husbands to do? I said, yeah, I know, I know that thing. She said, well, you're not doing it right now. It's like, oh, you know what? She was right. So what do I do? I change. I need to line up more with what I'm teaching other guys to do. And I'm saying that because that's what this message is for me. Really, anytime I preach on a specific topic, parenting, especially marriage, it helps me to remember to tighten up my game. If I'm going to preach, if I'm going to teach on that subject, again, especially on marriage, it's a reminder to me to not only teach others to do it, but I need to be doing it myself. This message is also a great reminder for me that if I'm to put something on social media, well, then I better be doing that in real life. Far too often, we live in this world where like 1% of what people put on social media is actually reality, and the other 99% is all a facade, if you will. Don't do that, okay? I'm encouraging everybody to be real here today. And so with that, let's go ahead and talk about marriage. Um, On Mother's Day, I used this line. I said, quote, parenting isn't for sissies. And so with that, I'm going to say it about marriage. Marriage isn't for sissies. And all the people said, yeah, right? It is not easy. Okay, here's something that I believe is going on in our lives. If you haven't recognized this, I need you to realize this today. When we are born, we are born the most selfish human beings on the planet, right? That's what a baby is. A baby is this little human being that is so very selfish. Because when a baby is hungry, it cries, right? When it has a mess in its pants, it cries. When it's too tired, it cries. And sometimes it just cries for no reason at all because it's wanting you to know that its needs are not being met and you're the one that needs to meet those needs. But then you grow up, hopefully. like Most of you are growing up, right? And there comes a point where you start to meet your own needs. It's called growing up. But then something happens. Something happens where you're put in this unique situation where you are forced to meet somebody else's needs for the very first time in your life. It's called marriage. Your life is no longer all about you. You don't get to go everywhere you want. You don't get to do everything you want. You have to check in with somebody else to see if the couple, you and this other person, wants to do it. You know, and then comes... Then comes where you become a parent, and so that changes you too, but... Marriage is a tool in the hand of a holy God to change you at the core of who you are. Okay? If you didn't know this, I want you to know, maybe you need to write this down. Marriage is meant to change you. 
Did you know that? A lot of people think, oh, marriage is going to fulfill me. No, marriage is meant to expose you at who you are and to change you at who you are. Because you cannot walk into a marriage and not be changed. If you don't change, you will not be in a successful marriage. Here's one thing I always tell married couples. They come to me for premarital counseling. I say, okay, hey, women come into a marriage and they think, hey, I'm going to change my husband. I'm going to change him and I'm going to mold him into who I am. And then husbands come into a marriage and go, hey, this woman that I'm marrying, she's never going to change. And I let them know, you're both wrong. Okay? Amen on that one? Yeah, okay. Because women, you guys change. You change a lot. Marriage changes you. And can we say motherhood changes a woman? Yeah, okay, yeah. Like it, love it, hate it. Motherhood changes a woman. And then that's only the tip of the iceberg, right? There's this thing called menopause. It's going to change you again. And holy smokes. Yeah, women change. Guys, not 100% true, but largely, mm, we don't change. We get, we get heavier. I'll say that. But other than that, we're, we're, uh, we're difficult. Well, I'll say, I'll say it that way. And so that's one reason why I want to say marriage isn't for sissies. Marriage is meant to be this picture of relationship between believers and a holy, perfect God. So with that, let's go ahead and look briefly, if you will, and into the whole, the whole of this message on what the Apostle Paul said to the church at Ephesus and what a marriage is supposed to look like. Read in Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 22. Paul says, Wives, submit to your own husband as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and, and his is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives submit. Scared me there. Okay. Uh, wives submit everything to their husbands. I want to say that's not a real popular text today, is it? That's not a one that usually pastors go on leading. That's not the one we're preaching on the street corner on on the day, right? But Paul's letting us know that wives get to be a picture of how believers are supposed to submit to Christ as she submits to her own husbands. That's some pretty intense words. But listen to, to Paul's instructions to the husband. The very next verse in Ephesians 25, Paul says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, before we go any further, I want you to really take Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, in context of the time it was written. 2,000 years ago in the Near East, women weren't exactly elevated in society. Okay? Women were essentially thought as property to be used, sometimes abused, and discarded, just go get another one. And it's on that backdrop that the Apostle Paul writes the believing men in Ephesus and say, says, love your wives. The word love is the Greek word agape, and it means a self-sacrificial love. He's not talking about an emotion there. That is a verb. That is, you're going to go sacrifice for your wives, and you're going to love them, and you're going to do whatever is in their best interest and expect nothing in return. And it's almost like I see the recipients of Paul's letter, these, these guys in Ephesus, they probably read that, and they're like, but Paul, wait a minute. They're women. And Paul would have said, yeah, I know. 
That's why I'm telling you to sacrifice. And they would have said, but Paul, they're women. And Paul would have said, yeah, I know, love them. And they would have said, but Paul, they're women. And so like I see, Paul says, do you have hummus in your ears? They're, yeah, love them as Christ loved the church and died for them. So with that, can you see how the Bible elevated the status of women more so than any other book in the history of time? The husbands should love your wives. To, to die for, to sacrifice. Whatever is in the best interest of your wife, do that. That's what Paul is saying. Now leave, I got homework for the husbands. You wouldn't think you'd get homework, right, on Father's Day. You've got homework. Go home and read Ephesians 5, 25 through 30. And with that, I want to pick it up at verse 31. Paul writes, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. I say, and and I am saying that as it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you so love his wife as himself and, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So marriage is supposed to be a picture of, our, of how we are to relate to our Savior, Jesus Christ, and how he loves us despite of us. I don't want to spend too much time in Ephesians today because I want to venture into those waters I talked about where Christians fail, usually fail to go. I'm going to look in the Old Testament, and I'm going to call this a difficult marriage, if you will. Okay, we're going to look and read and study about a difficult marriage on Father's Day. And if you're a student of the Bible and you know your Bible, I, I think you're like, whoa, Pastor John's going to preach on Hosea on Father's Day? Because this marriage is a very difficult marriage, to say the least. Hosea, he is a man. He is a prophet of God. And he is called to be obedient to what God has called him to do, no matter what, Right? And through this obedience, he has a message for God's people. Now, if you've ever thought it'd be cool to be a prophet, you'd be thought it'd be kind of cool to be a prophet, and for God to speak to you directly, I'd invite you to change your mind, okay? <laughs> if you've ever prayed, dear God, speak to me. Oh, God, give me a word. God, give me a word, and I will go do it. Who's ever prayed that prayer? Raise your hand. Go ahead. There's some liars in here, okay? Because I know more people have prayed that prayer. There's a couple of like just little hands shooting up. Um, I'd encourage you to read Hosea, and I think that's going to change your mind. Who wants to be called to that ministry that we were going to read about? How about, if you don't know Hosea, how about Isaiah? Isaiah was a prophet called to preach naked for three years. We forget about that one, right? Who wants to be the naked preacher? Not me. Uh, we'd be at the church potluck, like, ooh, pastor, I'm trying to eat. Go put some clothes on. Uh, anyways. <laughs> If you've ever asked for a word from God, I be challenge you, be very careful what you ask for. Because God's going to tell Hosea to do some stuff that we think is crazy. But then Hosea obeys. And it's going to leave us kind of scratching our heads what's going on. I'm sure you've heard the old saying, God never gives you more than you can handle. I think Hosea would disagree with that statement. Hosea and Isaiah, uh, Isaiah both would go, no, no, I don't think that's right. But today we're going to read about one of the most astounding, I don't know what else to call this marriage, but it is very astounding. I'm, I, I preach and speak for a living. I'm really lost for words what to call this marriage. So I'm just going to call Hosea's life and this marriage between him and a girl named Gomer is astounding. Um. 
I don't think you and I, at least most of us in this room, the vast majority have never had a relationship that's quite as difficult as the one that we're going to read about this couple having. And then also consider this. The difficulties that this marriage has is captured on the pages of the Bible. And there is going to be billions and billions of people that read about this difficult marriage. I mean, talk about embarrassing. At least when we have difficulties in our marriage, it's behind closed doors. But this is on blast for the entire world to see. This isn't, we're not seeing exactly Jerry Springer, if you remember that show. This is definitely Maury Povich from the 90s. We're going to read about this in a second. Because we're going to see how one spouse hurts another. We're going to see how a family suffers because of it. And I think the reason why I really picked this passage is because I think if you really study it with a, with, a, with a magnifying glass and look real close, I think what's going to happen is it's going to expand our capacity for love. When we see how this husband named Hosea loves his wife, Gomer, it should only encourage us and in, to, to really increase our capacity for love, regardless of how good or regardless how bad we think that we are or our spouse is doing. So that it is my prayer that if we leave here today, that this message would just shatter our capacity to love. And this should only encourage us to love our, our spouses with even greater love than we ever thought was imagined. So I want you to leave here today by the end of this message and go, you know what? I could love my spouse with a greater love than I could before I walked in this place today or watched on this, this message. Let me, let me paint a picture, if you will, of what I'm talking about when I say expand our capacity for love. When I was in high school, I, I wrestled at a very competitive high school. Okay, the, the high school I went to uh, was multiple times state champ. And in California, I think there's about 1,700 schools that compete for the, the, the state championship. There's only one crowned here in Wyoming. We get three with a fraction of the, of the population. And the population of my alma mater was about eight times what we have here at Warland. So to say we had a competitive room was an understatement. Okay, you had to be willing to walk into that room and give it absolutely everything you've got every second of that practice and be willing to do stuff outside of practice because if you didn't, there's about a dozen guys that are just chomping at the bit to take your position. They wanted your spot on the team, so you had to come in and give it everything you had. There was one uh, coach, he would say, if you're not bleeding, puking, or crying, your workout partner better be. I said, whoa, coach was intense, right? And so that's the backdrop of my high school. So I thought I knew how to practice. Wrestling there throughout my high school career, I'm ready. I thought I could push myself beyond what most high school students ever dreamt of. And then I went to college, okay? I went to college and I thought I knew how to push myself. And you're going to find out I was wrong, my head coach, he was, uh, he was old school. He was from back in the 70s, and he wrestled with some of the, the who's who of USA Wrestling back in the 70s and 80s. My, his assistant coach, Division I national champion, NCAA Division I, at 190 pounds. And he was, without a doubt, the baddest man I ever put my hands on. And I could tell you the story of the day when my life flashed before my eyes. I'm going to save that for another time. But it's the closest I've ever been to attack by a bear where you just lay down and you just, just hope they change their mind about killing you. Because I'll leave that for another day. But there's, thankfully, coach changed his mind and I'm still alive today. But these men, they inform me. 
They said, you know, you thought you were working hard. You thought you were prepared. But you haven't even scratched the surface yet. And if they said, if I was going to remain in that room, I was going to have to increase my capacity for more pain, more endurance, and more output, more like anything I'd ever imagined. And you know what? They were right. I thought I was prepared, but I wasn't even close to be prepared. And so they helped me push myself beyond what I thought I was capable of. And I'm using this illustration to try to, to, to make you focus on what a marriage is supposed to be like. Because we go into a marriage and we think we're ready. We think we're ready to, to love at a capacity that God wants to love. And then we get into a marriage we find out we're wrong. We've been through all these life events leading up to however old you were when you got married. You thought we were ready, but we were wrong, right? And then all of a sudden we're put in this relationship like marriage and it stretches us far beyond anything we even imagined that we are capable of when it comes in the realm of loving somebody other than yourself. So this morning we're going to talk about our own capacity for love. We're in the Old Testament book of Hosea. Hosea, we're going to meet him in a minute. He's a man that this book is named after and he lived in the 8th century B.C. And he, he's, a, he's a prophet of God. In other words, he is the spiritual and cultural leader of that day and age. He is the, the prophet. He's, a pro, he's kind of like God's PR director, if you will. He spoke to the people on behalf of God. God said something to him, and then he relayed the message to the people. So if you don't know this, a prophet is kind of like God's mailman. God's got a message to the people, and he's going to deliver it through these men called prophets, which Hosea is for, for, for this, this book. So Hosea is God's mouthpiece, and he happens to be God's mouthpiece during the leadership of one of the most terrible kings in, in, in Jerusalem, or Israel at the time. Okay, This terrible king, his, he, by the name of King Jeroboam II. And this king was a wicked king. And he's leading the people into moral depravity, unlike anything that's ever been seen. And so for the sake of little ears that might be in the room, let's just say it's bad. It's real bad. And under the, the, the leadership of Jeroboam II, the country grew economically weak, which is really just a picture of their spiritual weakness. And it really it led them to be conquered by the Assyrian Empire in 722 B.C., People say the Bible doesn't apply today. I greatly disagree. Because what's going on in Israel at that time, I think it could be on the front page of our newspaper if we really wanted to do. But I'm just telling you all, this is the atmosphere behind what Hosea is doing and saying during this time. So with that, let's, let's get into Hosea chapter 1 verse 1. This is what Hosea says. It says, the word of the Lord came to Hosea. Son of the Biri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Uzziah, Hezekiah, the kings of Judah, in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, the king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of, it's hard for me to say, Dilem, and she conceived and bore him a son. 
Can we see that this is going to be a difficult marriage? This is what God has called this prophet Hosea. He has called him to this very difficult marriage. God told Hosea, hey, go marry a prostitute and have children with her. This is a very strategic beginning, the story of how Hosea's marriage to Gomer is this this picture of what God wants to say to his people. Now, if you you don't know this, how bad this is, uh, Gomer's dad, that that name there, Dibalum, I'm probably saying that wrong, it means double portion of raisin cakes. Raisin cakes are an aphrodisiac. We would say two pills of Viagra. That's what this girl's dad is. So can you picture the, 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 the atmosphere that she is raised in? It's probably anything but moral, right? I'm just telling you, that's how bad this is. And God says, go marry her. So Hosea knew that God wanted to use his life in this way because God said, hey, go marry this prostitute named Gomer. I mean, think about this. Her lifestyle was not a surprise to Hosea. He knew who she was. And she, she, he knew what she did for a He knew what her father was like, right? So, but I have to think, okay, I got to put myself in Hosea's shoes. I think that Hosea is probably thinking, hey, this is going to be a model marriage for everybody to strive after, right? That's what he's thinking. He's thinking, hey, I can almost see like Hosea laying in bed and he's dreaming. God is giving me this vision. Go marry this prostitute. And it's just going to be wonderful. Hosea's thinking, I'm going to fix her. That's what he's thinking. He's thinking, I'm going to fix her. And he's thinking, he, he's going to save Gomer. He's going to rescue her out of this occupation that she's doing, this profession that she's so very closely tied to. And if you don't think that Gomer's identity is tied up in her profession, I think you're greatly wrong. Because a woman can't be in that line of work and then not deeply change her. So picture, God says, hey, Hosea, go marry her. And so Hosea is thinking, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change her. And this is going to be a picture of how God changes up and how he loves us, right? Do you think that's what Hosea is thinking before he enters in this marriage? I think so. But that brings me to my first point. Point number one, very few things in life happen the way we, we think they will. I've got that up on the board. There it is. Look, at very few things happen in life like we imagine they will. Has that been your, anybody over the age of 30 say, yeah, that's kind of what I've found in my life. It's not too terribly deep, but it's profoundly true. Can somebody relate to what I'm trying to say here? There was a point in your life where you said, you know, I'm going to be wealthy, right? I'm going to have this job and I'm going to be wealthy. And now here it is decades later and your finances aren't quite looking like you thought they would decades ago. Maybe your relationship status isn't quite what you thought it would be all these decades ago. Maybe you're not living where you thought you'd be living all these decades ago. You thought you'd be living on the beach in Hawaii and here you are in Worland, Wyoming. Things didn't happen the way you thought they were going to happen. Maybe you thought you were going to be a doctor, a CEO, something real flashy, and your, your profession isn't exactly what you thought they'd be all those decades ago. But I think this is a lesson that Jose, Hosea had to learn, and I think this is a lesson that we should learn. Let, let, me, let me give you this. I'm calling this God truth. We have to admit that Hosea's thinking probably represents the same pattern of thinking that, that we have, Right? 
Because we think we get this message, hey, this is from God. This is going to work out. We're going to go do it. It's just going to be amazing. We have those moments where we're like, oh, my connection with God is so strong. And he's, he's prompted me to make this life-altering change. And you assume, just like you know, everybody else assumes, that it's just going to be peaches and cream. You've made this decision. You're going to go with it. And it's just going to be amazing. It's just going to be so easy and carefree. And, and it, you don't realize what real life looks like. After the birth of... Our second child, McKenna, she's down work in the nursery right now. My wife lost the ability to have children. It was taken away from us, but we wanted more children. So we prayed and prayed and prayed about it. And so we, we, that means for us, it means adoption. There's no other way. So we're, gonna to, we're going to adopt, and we prayed about it, and we just, we just felt led that foster to adopt is the way we're supposed to go. And then right away, God brings us this four-month-old, redhead, blue-eyed little spitfire of a girl named Scarlett. And we thought in that moment, it's going to be mom, dad, two biological children, and this little redhead, and things are going to be awesome. Fast forward 15 months, Ethan came into our family. But then we get the news that nobody, no parent ever wants to hear. And we lost that little girl. Had to hand her back over to her biological father 15 months after she's been in our, our family. And let me say, we were devastated. I was wrecked like I've never felt before. I never imagined that was going to happen. That was not my plan when I entered into that, that situation, Right? But then here I am on the other side of that. Had we not walked through that experience, there's two more children that never would have came into our home. Had we not walked through that. And that happened because when that process began, there was this huge discrepancy between our expectations and reality. Right? That's the problem. We've got expectations, but here's reality. But watch what happens with, with Hosea. It's something similar. And I'm calling this the painful process of bringing expectations into alignment with reality. Here's my second point for today. Point number two, marriage helps to line up our expectations with reality. Right? Anybody go into a marriage, you're thinking it's just going to be wonderful, and then it's really hard. That's bringing expectations into reality. So no, now in the, the story in, in Hosea, Hosea, he marries Gomer. And they're going to have a child. And the birth of this first child is going to let you know that something's not right in the household because they named the child Jezreel. If you don't know this, Jezreel is the name of a city that is just has a tragic story. Jezreel is the name of a city where the royal children were massacred. So this is a messed up name. Is anybody would name their kids slaughtered? That's what Hosea and Dugomer do. They named their oldest child slaughtered. Good sign that things aren't all so good in this marriage, right? And then they have two more children, and it doesn't get any better. The second child is named Ruama, which means not loved. Who would name their child not loved? Then there's a third child named Loami, which means not my people. Can you imagine the, the school PTA meetings and the picnics and they come together and Jose introduces his family. This is my wife, Gomer, and our three children slaughtered, not loved, and not my people. Like, oh, who's ever doing the family counseling has got their work cut out from them with this family. 
And I know this is crazy, but you have to remember that this Hosea family, it's a picture. It's a picture of a relationship with God's people and God. God's trying to tell the people through this very dysfunctional family and, and also the Hosea naming these kids, what Hosea named these kids. He's saying, hey, you, we're not right. This relationship between the people and God, it's not good. Hosea's telling the people, you think you and God are good, but you're wrong. You and God are not good. Because the way you're living your life and the way you're, you're running your homes and the way you're running the church, it's not working. That's what Hosea is saying. God wanted to know the people, to know the way they're doing their things, it's rusting out the relationship with God. And we have to understand that same truth, okay? There's things that we can do in the the rhythm of life that actually rusts out the purity of our relationship with God. There's things that you and I can do that can put distance between us and God, and we call those things sin, we think it's no big deal. Hey, there's just little, this thing I want to do. Uh, there's a thing I want to I enjoy. I want to participate in. And it's called sin. And regardless of how small or how big it is, it puts distance between you and God. That stuff that you thought was worth doing in the moment, it actually leaves you feeling ashamed and regretful. And, you know, we, we get into these situations where we think, hey, I'm just getting on my computer. I'm going to click on this little site. I'm going to go here for just a minute, and it doesn't affect anybody but me. Hey, there's this relationship at work, and my spouse isn't providing for my emotional needs, so I'm going to go talk to this person, and it's going to be okay. No, it's not. It's not okay. The families are being destroyed. The relationship between us and God is going down in flames, and it's not right. As much as a marriage was about God's relationship with Israel, we have to remember this marriage between Hosea and Gomer, this is a real marriage. Yes, Hosea and Gomer, this is a marriage of a picture of God's relationship with people, but this is still a real marriage. This isn't just some metaphorical marriage. This is two people, husband and wife, and they're in a real marriage, and their kids, they have real kids. And the kids suffer greatly because of the conflict in the marriage. And you know what? The same is true for us. We cannot live the lives, sinful lives, we'd want to live and think it doesn't affect the kids. Well, this marriage, it finally broke, up, broke apart under the weight of conflict that this couple's going through. And this conflict is coming because Gomer hasn't exactly left her former occupation. She's not being faithful to her husband, and this actually fractures their relationship. The marriage is in serious trouble, and the the couple splits. Jump to Hosea chapter 2, beginning in verse 2. The word of God says, plead with your mother. Plead, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. That she put away from her her whoring from her face. So what happens is this couple, they, they, they separate. We don't know all the details, but we do know Gomer's got a past, right? She's got a past, and and I have to imagine there's these, I'm going to call them pressures from her past that just keep occurring in her present. If you don't know this, the sins from your past can haunt you in your present if you don't address them appropriately. So what we think is, yeah, that was the past, this is the now, and it's not going to affect me anymore. Not true. 
We have to handle our sins for our past or your sins will continue to haunt you. And as believers, we can be forgiven from our past, be going to heaven despite of our past, but yet our sins still haunt us if we don't handle them God's way. Most likely for, for Gomer, there's these habits that she didn't quite overcome. Maybe there's this part of her past that just seems so more appealing than her, than her present, right? And so she did, what she did was she removed, returned to her past rather than moving past her past. Pick it up in verse 5 of chapter 2. The word of God says, For their mother was played the whore, and she who conceived them acted shamefully. For she, for she said, I will go after my lover's. Who give me my bread and my water, my wool, my flax, my oil, and my drink. So what happens here is that Hosea, he found out Gomer's not being faithful. She's cheating on him. And very likely the the children that he's raising might not even be his biological children. Right? So Gomer has left Hosea and she's found comfort in the arms of another man. But here's something that I think most likely is going on in the head of Gomer. This is what she's thinking. She's thinking, oh, man, missed out on something. Don't you think back, maybe before they split up, she's laying in bed with Hosea, and she's thinking, man, my situation could be different if I just changed this one little thing, right? It's almost like I picture in bed, and she's picture her laying in bed next to Hosea. Maybe she's scrolling through Instagram, and she comes across a photo of an old boyfriend, He's looking good. Maybe he's laying on a beach somewhere and she's thinking, you know what? My life could be like that if I made this little change. If I made this tiny little change from my current situation, everything would be so much better than it is now. And Gomer makes the same mistake that so many people make that they think that joy and happiness is something to be found out there rather than to be something that's cultivated within here, right? Brings you my third point. Point number three. Joy and happiness don't come from our circumstances. That's something that's cultivated from within us. And think about that. We think that joy and happiness is going to be on who we're going with and what we're eating and what we're wearing and what we're doing. No, it's not. That's a lie from the world. Joy and happiness is something that is cultivated within us. And I'm going to get to the the most important relationship at the end of this this message. It has to be inside. You go after the stuff of the world, you're going to end up empty every single time. So it's at this point, Gomer, she she leaves Jose and she believes that all of her needs are going to be met with somebody else. But that's not the case. She leaves her husband's and she's going to, she thinks, you know, someone else is going to provide for her better. Her needs are going to be cared for better. Somebody else is going to support her better than the way she is being supported by her husband. You know, we don't have all the details, but I have to imagine that Hosea realizes his wife's gone and he loves his wife. And he thinks, I got to go get her. I got to find her. I mean, picture this is a real marriage. Jose is going door to door to door, knocking on the door of the people in his own hometown and saying, is my wife here? Picture it. How embarrassing would that be? Picture going down these streets, husbands knocking on the door and having to ask people you don't know, hey, is my wife here? Then you knock on the next door, someone opens, you know them, and you have to ask, is my wife here? 
How embarrassing would that be? And after weeks and weeks, we think he finds her. He's, he's knocking on this door, and a man opens the door. Immediately, this man recognizes Hosea, right? And he just simply says, is she here? And I have to think there's a part of Hosea that's filled with rage and anger and embarrassment all at the same time and shame, and he's frustrated. And I have to think he wants to strangle the life out of this man that's destroying their marriage, but he doesn't. This is where the merit, this, this story starts to get wild. Instead of strangling this guy, Hosea just says, I want to make sure she's okay. Hosea tells this guy, hey, I brought food and I brought clothing. I brought clean water. I brought perfumes and oils. Would you get this and give it to my wife? And don't forget to tell her I love her. Hosea is so long suffering. I'll say Hosea is a better man than I would have been. Oh, yeah. And you know what this guy does? He takes and he says, okay, I got you. I'll take care of you. And he takes Hosea's gifts and he rips his name, Hosea's name off the tag. And he puts his own name on the tag and he gives it to Hosea, or excuse me, gives it to Gomer. So she thinks he's the one that gives it to her. Jump to verse 8 of chapter 2. It says, and she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, the oil, who lavished on her silver and gold. Gomer never knows that it's really her husband that loved her the whole time. Hosea is the one that's that's providing for her despite of everything. She thought it was her boyfriend. Nope, not her boyfriend. It's her husband. And so Hosea, he never hears from her. He he never hears how she's doing. She's thinking, hey, there's these guys that are taking care of me. No, those are the guys that are abusing you. You've got a husband at home that loves you, that's caring for you. And then Hosea's back at the house, and he's caring for the kids that might not even be his. And I'm sure he's filled with all sort of emotions. He doesn't know what to do next. Before we go any further, let's kind of stop here. Let's be honest. Is anybody thinking right now, this is the worst Father's Day message I've ever heard in the history of Father's Day at church? Is that what you're thinking? Okay, no hands. Okay, somebody here is lying because I know somebody's thinking it. But let me ask you another question. Does anybody love a story with a twist? Yeah, don't you love that story that you're watching it and something happens? You're like, I didn't see that coming. Then you say, I never could imagine that's what, how the story was going to end. Well, watch what happens next. Jump to chapter 3, verse 1. And the Lord said to me, go again. Love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel. I read that, I'm like, what? God said, what? Are you serious? I didn't see that one coming. I didn't. God said, hey, Hosea, go get your girl. I know she's cheated on you. She's been unfaithful to you. But you love her like I love the children of Israel. God is telling Hosea, I want you to increase your capacity for love. God said, hey, hey man, I know you've been hurt. I know you've been wronged. I know you're not the one completely to blame in this deal, but I'm asking you to love her with my love. That's what God is saying there. Most of the time, our capacity for something is defined by what's been modeled for us, right? 
Often when we love somebody else, we love somebody else with a measurement that we've been displayed, usually by our parents. We love our spouse like, like we've seen our parents love each other, but God's saying, I don't want you to do that. I want you to go beyond that. I want you to love that girl with the measurement of my love. I, I, want you, I don't want you to model what you've seen by other people's devotions. I'm asking you to demonstrate a love at the level of my devotion. Who's God? That's what he says. Every time we make a commitment to marriage, that commitment that we're making to love and sacrifice is not at a capacity of our being, but at the level of God's being, right? That's what God is saying. He's saying, you think you can only love this much, but I want you to blow your mind apart and go far beyond that, right? Don't love at your capacity, but love at my capacity, and, he, and God's saying, I'm going to help you with your devotion to your wife so it can go further than you ever imagined it could be. So I, I imagine, if you will, that it's not Hosea hearing this challenge from God. But it's every husband in the room right now. Every husband that's online. Every male that is married to maybe podcast this message somewhere down the line. God wants us to know, I don't want you to love your wives like a measurement that you think you can or you've seen. I want you to love your wife like I love your wife. And this is how it's played out for Hosea. We're told he goes back to his wife and he actually has to purchase her freedom. He has to grab his wallet, take it out, and then pull out money and pay some man to buy his own wife. Can, can you imagine that? I don't think that's what Hosea thought was going to happen when God called him to this wife. Because he thought, you know, the work that was going to happen was going to be on Gomer. But the work actually happened on Hosea, didn't it? Hosea is the one that's radically changed. He thought his marriage was going to be a model how someone's life could be restored and redeemed. But what this marriage ended up modeling was a relentless, sometimes seemingly irrational love that God has for us. Right? That's how much God loves us. God was telling the people of Israel through this marriage, you've abandoned the covenants that we made together. God is telling the children of Israel that, that hey, you cheated on God. God is telling his people, you've given your life to things that don't value you the way that I value you. You've left me in your pursuits of what you thought were going to give you pleasure, but you left me for what you thought was going to give you wealth and comfort. But you, didn't, you did that because you didn't trust me. God wants the people to know, I want you to know I still love you despite of what you've been through. So if you're sitting here today and you're hearing this message, I want you to know that God loves you beyond anything you could possibly imagine. I don't care where you've been. I don't care what you've done. God still has a relentless love for you. You need to know, every single one of you today, that you're deeply loved by a holy, perfect God. That the love he has for you is more than your past mistakes. That your value is not dictated by who you are at your worst, but it's been assessed by, because of what God was willing to give for you. Gave his son. His one and only son. He gave for you. And the second thing I need you to know, that, that your capacity to love is greater than you think. There's times we think we can't handle what we're going through. 
You can. With God by your side, if you don't give up, right? You know, the only way we can remotely come to understand this concept, I think, is the love we have for our children. You know, when I got married, I stood on an altar just like this. I was over on this side, and I held hands with this, with this beautiful girl that was in, in complete white. And I held her hands, and in that moment, I'm looking into her eyes. I'm thinking, I can never love anybody the way I'm loving this person. This is it. I can't love anybody greater than this. And I remember very vividly the events that transpired that shattered what I thought was the most I could love somebody. It happened on February 1st, 2006. It was a Wednesday when Tillman Burns was born. He was delivered in the wee early mornings by scheduled C-section and with, with C-section, it's surgery, so there's chaos that comes with that. We went in early and Amy got on the table and they delivered Tillman. It was chaos there for a while. And then there was the cut in the umbilical cord and all the craziness that goes on with that. And then I remember I'm in the, the, uh, the NICU and we're there and there's a little window and all the grandparents are coming by and waving. I'm so happy. I've never been so happy in my life. And then the waves and waves of friends coming by and just hugs and, and just great times. It was just so amazing. We didn't have a moment to, to kind of sit back and relax for a, for a second until like later that night because all the tests and everything you got to do with the, with the newborn. And it was probably late, I'm guessing 9, 10 o'clock at night. Amy's in her bed. She's fast asleep. And Tillman's um, in, swaddled up in the little, little bassinet. And I remember I scooped my son up. And I walked down to the hallway. There's this old rocking chair in the hospital hallway, and I sat down. And for the very first time, I'm holding my son. And it's just the two of us, just he and I, nobody else is there. And it's in that moment, I said, I can't love anybody the way I love this little guy right now. I said, I love him so much. Oh, and, 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 I, and I realized, I'm like, wait a minute. He is completely dependent on me. If I don't give everything I got, this little guy's not going to make it. He needs me for everything. And then I come to realize, wait a minute. He's completely unaware that I'm even here. And yet I love him so desperately. And then I realize, you know what? I think that's just like how God loves us. Because there was a time I had no idea that God even existed I didn't even give God a, a second thought, but yet I was so very dependent on him for the very air that is in my lungs. I need him. And had God given up on me, I wouldn't even be here. And I learned a lesson that a hallway that I, I pray, I never ever forget about the love of God that he has for us. You know, at this stage in life, our kids aren't even comparable of, of understanding that. They don't have a category for that. Because their, their experience in this life is so limited. All they know is their mom and dad, they love them. They don't recognize what we're willing to do for them. Then in a moment, I would give my life. I would even give it a second thought for any of our children. I would give my life if it would, if it would save them just an ounce of pain. But I have to imagine that's what God's love is for us. That's how God's love works for every single one of us. And if you think 
that your shortcomings and your sin and your past, you think that can dissuade a holy, perfect God from loving you? You're wrong. You think God's commitment and God's temperament and is conditional like ours is? You're wrong. Your sin is not that strong. The devil is not that strong. The spiritual things of this world are not that strong. God has a relentless love for you. And it's evident because it was more than just empty lip service. Because God took the one thing he loves more than anything else. And he sacrificed it for you and me. Read John chapter 3 verse 16. Jesus said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever should believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. God the Father loved you, loved you, loved you, loved you, loved you so much. He said, told the second member of the Trinity, go, robe yourself in human flesh and give your life for sinners. He knew that his son would be tortured beyond what is recognizable as a human being. And he knew they would take his hands and they would stretch it out. And they would drive nails in his hands and his feet. And he knew that he would die on a cross so that we can be forgiven. That's how much God loves you. And that he would keep this this message preserved for thousands of years so you could hear it. What? That's wild. And then he, even God, if you're not a believer, he would orchestrate your life. So you came into a church service like this, sat down to hear this message about the relentless God's love has for you. And I want you to know if that describes you, it's not too late. It's never too late. If you're breathing air, it's not too late. If you're here this morning and maybe you hear God just tapping on the door of your heart, you know what he wants you to do? He wants you to open that door and allow him to come in. He wants you to give your life to him and he will change you. I believe nobody hears a message like this on accident. The Bible has the most beautiful promise in the world. It says, whoever calls in the name of the Lord, they will be saved. So today... Maybe you're far from God. I want you to know this love that I'm talking about. If you've never cried out to him, dads, Father's Day would be the greatest day to do it. To recognize there's a holy, perfect God that so desperately loves you that he would continue to search after you again and again and again despite your wickedness. At your worst, Jesus is still on the cross paying for your sins. So we have to recognize we're a sinner. Call out to the Savior, and you will be saved. It happens in a moment of contrition where you recognize that it's your, your sinfulness. You just cry out, say, dear Lord, I'm a sinner. Save me from my sins. Jesus came to die in my place. I give you my life. Thank you for saving me. I pray this in the perfect name of Jesus Christ. Amen.